Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, my name is David Obeltz and welcome to the Russia-Ukraine War Update for Sunday, September 11th. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. We've been around since 2016, where the truth matters. There is a lot to talk about this week. I take the microphone on Sundays to give Linia a day off. We're going to be talking about everything that's happened in the last week. I think that is the, the big topic and the obvious topic. We're going to be talking about what's going on in the Azum front, Kharkiv, Luansk, and what is happening in Kherson. And with that, why don't we just go ahead and get started? One of the biggest questions that I have been asked over the last week is, was Herson a feint? Was this a deception and that the real offensive was going to be in Kharkiv? And my answer to that question is, one, I have no insight into what the military commanders in Kiev are deciding. So this is all strictly my opinion. And the answer to that question is no. Herson is an absolutely legitimate counteroffensive and the counteroffensive in Kharkiv was planned at the same time because this was moves on the chessboard and it was wildly successful i would speculate it was more successful than what military planners had anticipated but again all of this is my opinion why is it so different why is her son taking so much time while Kharkiv was this lightning strike where up to 8,000 square kilometers has been liberated in a week. The answer to that question is quite simple. It's the terrain. They're very different areas. And we've discussed this before. There's an article we have up on our news site on malcontentnews.com that we wrote back on July 28th that said... If people were expecting the Herson counteroffensive to look like the Kharkiv counteroffensive, they were going to be very disappointed. And there's a lot of disappointed people. And the reason that we said that goes back to terrain. It's open wheat fields. There's nowhere to hide. There is nowhere, if you're maneuvering towards a village, a town, where Russians are dug in, they can see you coming from kilometers away. And it is very easy for them to lay cover fire down on an advancing unit. And even though there are a lot of signs that Russia is running out of artillery, they're running out of ammunition, their equipment is starting to fail from overuse, that doesn't mean that small arms, machine guns, rocket-propelled grenades can't be used against an advancing force while they're still kilometers away attempting to move through open wheat fields. That's why this is taking so much longer. And we use the analogy of this will resemble the island hopping campaign from the Pacific Theater of World War II for the United States versus this blitzkrieg that we saw in Kharkiv. And what I mean by island hopping 
is if you think of the individual villages and towns as islands, and if you think of the wheat fields as oceans, you have to prepare your beachheads at a distance. That requires air force. That requires artillery. That requires rocket attacks. Then you have to position your light infantry with armor support, and they have to move across open water on a defended beachhead. The city limits, the outer edges, those outer defenses, those are the beaches of an island. And then even when you collapse those beachheads, the Russian troops are just going to move in and you have urban fighting. Even if you're in a village that only housed 250 people, you're still going to have to clear things house to house. Urban fighting is bloody. It takes time. There's a lot of traps that you can fall into as an offensive force, especially when you're dealing with an offensive force that has five weeks of NATO training. And I'm not disparaging the five weeks of training because they could be fighting against Russian troops, reinforcements that have been brought in that got one week of training, where five weeks is certainly better than one week. Because the longer a soldier is trained before they go to the field, the more they can be taught about the nasty, dirty, awful tricks that an opposing force, an enemy, will do to try to kill them. And this is the benefit of, say, when you're in special forces, if you are on SEAL Team 6, if you're this boutique units, that's the training they get. They learn all the nasty, dirty tricks that have been learned the hard way through decades, and likewise, they learn how to counter those, and they learn how to set up their own nasty, dirty tricks. So this is very tough terrain, but absolutely is a legitimate counteroffensive that is happening there. If it wasn't, Russia would not be continuing to attempt to bring in more personnel and more material across the Dnipro River and suffer the heavy casualties that they are in attempting to do that. So I've beaten that one into the ground. Let's move on and talk about what happened in Kharkiv over the last week. Two weeks ago, there were a lot of questions. Can Ukraine perform combined arms army tactics at a multiple brigade level and be successful? We could put that to bed. That has been answered. It is a resounding yes. Ukraine ran a masterclass on combined arms tactics in Kharkiv over a week. This is the largest military defeat that has been handed out on the European continent since World War II. You might be able to say since, February, uh, since March of 2022, when Russian forces were pushed out of Kyiv. And ultimately, the Russian Ministry of Defense has made the same decision. Uh, we're going home. We're taking our ball. We're going home. And we're going to try to wrap this message as this is some kind of victory. Because the message that they're saying is, well, we're withdrawing to reorganize. And we're going to concentrate on Donetsk now, which you know and I know, and I hope most people listening right now know, that 
that's just a complete load of you-know-what. Ukrainian military commanders truly thought of everything in this offensive. One of the concerns a lot of people had, aren't they running ahead of themselves? Are, are they stretching their supply lines too far? And we would be telling people, no, in this case, no. If they were moving this fast in Kherson, we would be a lot more concerned about, whoa, you need to reestablish and protect your ground lines of communication, your supply lines. It goes back to wheat fields. Number one, the terrain in Kharkiv favors Ukrainian tactics even before February of 2022. This is an area where Ukraine has historically done well. When I say area, I mean this type of terrain, forested, hilly terrain. This aligns to their equipment and their tactics. This is one of the reasons why north of Kyiv back in March, they slowly chipped away at the Russian forces. Here's the other thing. I think a lot of people are looking at what happened in Izum and Kharkiv and are thinking this happened in a week. I could tell you the exact date when this counteroffensive started, when the first shaping operation, we talk about shaping operation, what that is, is setting conditions to get to the point of what happened over the past week. And that is May 3rd. That's the first day. Because on May 3rd at Vasile, there was an artillery strike on a Russian convoy. 34 vehicles were destroyed in that strike. And that is probably the first fire mission, the first artillery mission involving NATO M777, 155-millimeter artillery, because there's drone video of it. It was drone-directed, and the accuracy was just pinpoint. It was a completely different level than what we had seen from Ukrainian forces up to that point. The first HIMARS attack in all of Ukraine was in Izum on June 25. The first one we know about. There might be one that happened before that we don't know about, but the first one we know about, June 25, in Izum. They hit Russian headquarters. They hit a field depot. Ukrainian special operation forces were moving through the area that is called Sherwood Forest. We're Sherwood Forest. That is the area west of Azum. If you're a first-time listener, you probably haven't heard about this. If you're a repeat listener, you're rolling your eyes going, here he is, talking about Sherwood Forest again. The Russians called the forested area west of Azum Sherwood Forest, but they did not view themselves as Robin Hood. They viewed themselves as the sheriff of Nottingham and his men. This was not a good place to be. The 64th, the Butchers of Bucha, were sent there, and they were, by mid-June, wiped out between Ukrainian artillery strikes and special operation forces that were going through and doing little hit-and-run attacks. It's not a great area. It's marshy, it's forested, there's hardly any roads, and there's a lot of speculation that there remains Russian forces trapped in this area. They are encircled. And what happened was, because it's so remote and Russian radio communications are almost non-existent, they just didn't get the memo. They did not find out that, hey, we're leaving a Zoom. They didn't get the memo, and that's why they're stuck there. And we're still seeing artillery strikes going on south of a Zoom. These are these units in Sherwood Forest 
that are in a, you can't even say a technical encirclement. They are encircled. We've heard reports that over the week, roughly, I mean, we're day six, that the counteroffensive has happened in Kharkiv. Russian POW numbers are in the four digits. We've seen anywhere from 1,000 to 7,000. We believe that that range is at the low end. 7,000 is beyond wildest dreams. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Earlier when I said that Ukraine thought of everything, I truly mean that. This was not about the speed. A lot of people are looking at Wow, they moved 30 kilometers in the first day. They moved 20 kilometers in the second day. They moved another 10 or 20 kilometers on the third day. And by the fourth day, the Russian military is completely on the run. It wasn't about the speed. It was about the execution. And it was about the decision-making capabilities that were given to the field commanders. In the Russian military, there are no non-commissioned officers. All of the military decisions are made from the top down. This is why we are seeing generals that were getting killed for months. This is why we are seeing colonels and lieutenant colonels being captured in the field. The Ukrainian forces demonstrated their capabilities to improvise and for commanders to synthesize all of the information that was coming in very quickly in making decisions. A more conservative military commander would have reached the point where they said, okay, you know what, we need to pause because this is going better than what we thought, so we need to stop. But the Ukrainian military commanders were cautiously aggressive. They didn't do anything reckless. Hey, we're in this village, and we were told there was going to be Russians here, and they're gone. They've bailed. All right, keep going. Right? We're getting reports that there may be Russians in this village. If that village is clear, then keep going. And these were the kind of decisions that were going on. They pulled up air defenses with that first echelon. So they neutralized the Russian Air Force. They anticipated that the Russians were going to come in with air power because that's what the opposing force would do in this scenario. And they prepared for that. And it wasn't just giving every person a man pad. They brought in air defense equipment. And the word is that the German Gepard systems were extremely effective in neutralizing the Russian Air Force. We have confirmation that Russia lost seven aircraft over the period of four days. That may sound like a low number. That's a lot because the Russian Air Force has not been willing to put their aircraft in harm's way. The other thing that was happening is Ukraine started moving so fast and overrunning fleeing Russian positions that when the Russian Air Force was deployed the first day that they were like, okay, we're going to come in, you need to stop this, they were attacking retreating Russian units because the Ukrainian units were already ahead and the Russian units weren't getting communication. So they were independently panicking and retreating on their own. 
And there was a lot of these friendly fire incidents with the Russian Air Force, which took the Russian Air Force off the chessboard. Then the next thing that people were expecting in the Russian sphere was, all right, they've overextended themselves. Now we'll be able to come back in because they're spread out. But there was a second echelon. There were two brigades of reserve units. There were reserve units that were complaining online because they weren't pulled into the fight. They felt like they were missing out on this great victory. And one of the things that those units were missing out was that was their job. Their role was to be that reserve. So if it was needed, they could come in. And those units now will move in and help with the cleanup, the sweep and clear of these remaining pockets of Russian resistance because there are troops that are stuck behind enemy lines at this point, and there are other troops that are attempting to just blend in. They've taken off their uniforms, they've stolen a civilian car, and they've dumped their passports and their papers, and they're just trying to get out, pretending that they are a civilian. Early this morning, Seattle time, really early this morning, about 4.30 this morning, the word came out that Russian forces were also withdrawing north of Kharkiv City, and we are seeing a ton of reports that that withdrawal is just about completed. So Russia has ceded all of the territory northwest, north, northeast of Kharkiv City, all of northern Kharkiv, and everything west of the Oskiel River, all the way to the Donetsk-Kharkiv administrative border. The Russian Ministry of Defense is claiming that they are going to dig in on the eastern side of the Oskiel. The reality is, before the war, before this mass invasion, there were only about 30,000 people that lived in that entire area on the east side of the Oskiel. Probably about half of them have left because of the invasion, and it is a heavily forested area. This is an area, again, that favors Ukraine and favors Ukrainian tactics. Assessment, opinion, I own it. If Russia is digging in there, they're not going to be there for long. I believe the reason that Russia is staying there is as a defense to retreating forces out of Luhansk Oblast, because this is what we're starting to see. We're starting to see Russian troops pulling out. What we don't know is, was this an order to retreat, or is this because radio communications have broken down, and this is an independent decision by units to panic retreat? At the time of recording this, there are a lot of reports that Limon has fallen and it has been liberated by Ukraine or that they are in cleanup operation in Limon. But it does appear that the defense there of this uh, resort town uh, that had about 20,000 people in it has uh, effectively the defense there is over. There is a lot of rumors going on about several Donetsk and Lyschansk, and I can't address it at this time. Uh, there's too much fog and just don't know. And this raises, of course, the question, is Ukraine creating 
intentional disinformation in the information space to sow panic within the Russian troops to get them to retreat, to confuse them on what is going on? Or are they actually retreating? Are they leaving this area? One thing's for sure, we're going to find out in the next couple of days. The next logical move here is to cut the land bridge to the Donbass. And the reason that I say that is the area that's been lost in Kharkiv. This is why Russia is saying we're going to hold the east side of the Askil because they need that ground line of communication. They need that supply line into northeast Donetsk and into Luhansk. If they lose that, then half of Luhansk is in danger of collapsing which is why we're either seeing Russian forces retreating out of there or the disinformation campaign to convince them to retreat out of there. Another thing that I am asked is, what's next? Now all this is happening, what's the next move on the chessboard? Once again, I'm not a general, I'm not in Kyiv, this is my opinion, And this is also based upon the near panic in the Russian information space where they believe, the Russian mill bloggers, that Ukraine is going to make a run for Mariupol. So the next logical thing to do is to drive south and to cut the Crimean Peninsula from the Donbass. And you could do that at Mariupol and you could do that at Melitopol. It's a shorter route to get to Mariupol. It is a much longer and probably harder route to get to Melitopol. There is a huge insurrection in Melitopol in particular. Russia really doesn't have much internal control of that city anymore. We don't know as much about what's going on in Mariupol. We know that there is resistance there. We know there's an insurgency there, and we know it's getting bolder. They're targeting territorial guard. They are targeting the police forces. Does Ukraine have more troop strength? Do they have more units that they can bring to bear into this area or any other area for that matter? I don't know the answer to that question. If I knew the answer to the question, I wouldn't share it out of respect of operational security. And to be clear, we don't communicate with Anybody in the Ukrainian government, we don't have access to any classified information or secret information. We get all of our information from the public sphere and analyze that information. We do have contacts within Ukraine, non-military contacts. They share information with us. We use that information to inform our decisions. With all that said, the most logical next move on the chessboard is to sever that land bridge. Mariupol is a possible place to do it. Melitopol, also a place to do it. We're going to find out what the next move on the chessboard is. And I know people have been coming to me going, wow, you've called it, you've called it, you've called it. Candidly, I, I don't know right now because there is a lot of confusing information, and the Russian military has been thrown into chaos. The reality is Ukraine may not have to launch another counteroffensive. We just may see the Russian military go home.
The last thing I want to talk about, we've been putting in our situation reports that we believe that there is a extremely high chance for terror attacks, for attacks on civilians, and this is what we're seeing. Russia today destroyed one of the largest power plants in all of Ukraine, in Kharkiv. They have plunged the entire city in a large swath of area into darkness. They've disabled the water in the city. But ironically, they wiped out electrical service in large parts of Russia because it's all connected to the same electrical grid. And the analyst team was going, they can't be that stupid. Were they? Re- yes, I, they were. The reality is winter is coming. And that line is so old now, it's practically a dad joke. I'm not saying it to channel the show Game of Thrones. Winter is coming, and winter in Ukraine is brutal. Winter in Kharkiv in Ukraine is particularly brutal. So to go after electrical systems, to go after the water supply, classic Russian textbook maneuver that we have seen through the entire war. It's like trying to get out of an abusive relationship. If I can't have you, then no one can have you. And we've seen this over and over and over again. And this won't stop and it will likely get worse because what we have consistently seen is when things have not gone the way that the Russian Federation, that the Kremlin wants it to go, they go right back to the well of let's kill civilians. I have a personal, very cynical view on this, and I'm going to share it, and it's probably going to offend some people. Every grad rocket, every smirch rocket, every missile that is used against a civilian is one more weapon that is not used against the Ukrainian military. The other thing is, for every civilian that is hurt, it creates 10 more Ukrainian soldiers. And for every civilian that is killed, it creates a hundred more Ukrainian soldiers. It is a failed policy among a multitude of failed policies, and nothing's going to change in these failed policies. If you had told me a month ago we'd be looking at exponential growth on the podcast, uh, I would say I would hope so. Uh, But uh, when I look at the numbers, uh, I'm just amazed. So thank you so much for your support. For as little as $5 a month, you can support independent journalism. You can go to our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash themalcontent. You get access to our daily situation reports. Uh, They are anywhere from 20 to 70 pages. They provide our assessment. They provide our insights. They provide detailed maps on everything that is going on. We have had to trim back our geopolitical and economic coverage because there is so much that has been happening in the kinetic space, in the battlefield space. We will move to that again once things settle down a little bit, but that doesn't look like things are going to settle down in the coming week. If you have any insights or information that you want to share with us, you can always send us a message at tips at malcontentnews.com. 
Once again, that is tips at malcontentnews.com. Make sure to put podcast in the subject line. That way it gets routed to the proper people in our newsroom. And that concludes today's podcast. And Linnea will be back for tomorrow. And be safe, everybody, to take her line. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.